0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to be here with you this morning. I'm honored to be here and get to bring you the word of God today. It's uh, really neat to hear that Pastor Daniel's at an ordination service this morning. Um, It hits me in a special way because Pastor Daniel was a part of my ordination council um, just a number of years back in 2014. So uh, neat that now I can be here in the pulpit he preaches from each week and uh, serving you in this fashion. I pray you all had a wonderful Christmas season, despite all the sickness going around and so forth. Doesn't it seem like Christmas was long ago now? It was only two weeks ago. Only two weeks ago, but it seems like forever ago already. And praise the Lord, Jesus has come. Our Messiah, the Savior, has come. That's good news. It's glorious news. Um, But the glory of Christmas is not only that Jesus came. It's also great because of the reason why he came. I mean, he, his coming alone was not necessarily good news. Uh, he could have come to judge the world. It could have been round two of Noah's flood. He could have came to wipe us out. But, but rather, the good news of his coming is the reason why he came. And that's what makes Jesus' birth so glorious. Now, what was his mission? If we were to ask people on the streets today why did Jesus come? Uh, We would get a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Quite a range of answers. I mean, you'd have some people would say, I don't even believe Jesus ever did come. It's all made up. And we know history proves them wrong. But some might say, well, Jesus came to set an example for us of how we should live a devout life and how we should be willing to die for a cause we believe in. Others would say uh, he came to be a good teacher and to teach us heavenly wisdom about God and eternity and life. Some might say he came to bring social reform of some kind, or others might say he came on the scene to start up a new religion called Christianity. Some might say he came to tell us to do better and try harder to please God, which of course we know is the opposite of what he actually came and taught. Some might say he came to make all our dreams come true, to fill our pockets or uh, to protect us from harm or sickness or trials, to give us the good life, which again we know is not true. Not only are these ideas not true, none of them are good news because none of them deal with mankind's greatest need. None of them clear us of the guilt of our sin. None of them restore our shattered relationship with God. None of them save us from death and hell and our enslavement to sin. The good and glorious news of Jesus' coming is that he came on a rescue mission. He came to save sinners like you and me and bring us back to God. And praise the Lord, what a glorious truth that that is. It's a truth that we can easily take for granted if we've grown up in the church or if we've been Christians for a long length of time. This morning, we're going to zoom in on this truth, and we're going to examine a passage of Scripture in which Jesus so beautifully illustrates his mission for us, and even uh, directly verbalizes it to us in a sermon that I've entitled, The Mission of Christ. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And I'm going to ask if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke 19, we read, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was. But could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are so glorious, so beautiful and great. You are so worthy of all of our worship, adoration, and praise. We thank you for loving the world so much that you sent Jesus, your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We thank you for your holy inspired word by which you reveal yourself to us and reveal your good news, your gospel. You are truly our salvation. We praise you and worship you today, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We want to see you this morning, Lord. We want to hear from heaven this morning, Lord. Let me not speak these words here today in vain. Lord Jesus, get me out of the way that you would speak and that we would hear from you today. Give us ears to hear. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. And, Holy Spirit, bring about transformation in our lives today. Grow our hearts. In love for you and in love for others, do a work here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In order for us to truly appreciate the mission of Christ, we must first truly understand who we were apart from Christ. Contrary to popular thinking, we were not generally good people who occasionally make bad decisions needing some correction. Nor were we neutral beings who could decide good or bad and just needed the right counsel. And you're thinking, uh, are you saying that we were bad people? I'm saying it's much worse than that. We weren't merely bad people needing to be made good. The Bible says that because of our sin, we were dead spiritually. That we were radically depraved that we were lost. When the Bible describes people as being lost, I think that word has lost some of its weight over time. But it is a horrific thing. We weren't lost like kids in the woods who might backtrack and eventually find their way back home. No, for us, there was no way of ever getting home. In fact, the word lost here in our text today comes from a word that means to be ruined, destroyed, useless, perishing, given over to eternal misery in hell. Because we are sinners and because God is holy and can have no dealing with sin, we were completely cut off and separated from a relationship with God. The Bible tells us we were far off from him with absolutely no way for us to cross the infinite chasm that existed between us. Even worse, we had no desire for him, and no ability to come to him on our own. Rather, we were truly children of wrath headed directly for an eternity in hell. But praise God that in his great love and mercy and grace, he took the initiative to come for us. Like a shepherd who lost one of his sheep, like a woman who lost one of her 10 silver coins, he sought us. He came to find us and make us his. And praise the Lord. We see all throughout the pages of Scripture that our God is a missionary God, and that our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest missionary in the history of the world. And outside all the passages, outside of the passages of the crucifixion event itself, I think that one of the clearest and most beautiful passages in all the Bible that displays Jesus' heart and mission is found in this text here before us today. In this famous story of Jesus' encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. For those of us who grew up in church, this will be a very familiar story for us. You probably remember singing the kid's song about Zacchaeus growing up. And while this certainly is a great story to teach to children, it is so much more than a kid's story. And there's so much more here than gets expressed through a quaint little song. In reality, there's a story here that should deeply astound us as we contemplate the grace of our God, that should drive us to our knees in deeper worship and adoration as we ponder the mercy that Christ has shown to sinners like us. And there's a story here that should motivate us to move boldly toward lost people with love and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see more clearly Jesus' mission and recognize that his mission is now our mission. As the Father sent me, so now I send you. As we begin our story, we begin with the setting. And here in verse 1, our author, Luke the physician, sets the scene for us. Verse 1, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee in the north for some time now, and he's now on his way to Jerusalem for his final visit there knowing that God's appointed time for his death is now upon him, knowing there awaits him a cross with his name on it. And as he heads there, he intentionally chooses to pass through this city, Jericho. Now, when you hear that name, you should immediately recall the famous event that happened here back in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 6, where the Israelites took this city, the very first that they took in their conquest of Canaan, not by attacking it, but oddly by walking around it for seven days, then blowing trumpets and shouting. How's that for a battle strategy? And what happened? Those huge, magnificent walls came crashing down. As another famous kid's song puts it, the walls came tumbling down. As God miraculously displayed his power to bring down those walls and give the Israelites the victory. Now, Jericho is approximately 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. If you ever take a trip over to Israel, you can visit there. I've been there. It's a neat place to see. The modern site is about a mile away from the original site. And in Jesus' day, Jericho was a very fruitful, very fertile city. And still today, you can get delicious dates off the palm trees there. You just can't get dates like that in New Jersey. It was also a very wealthy, very busy city because it was an international crossroads. It is where the main routes traveling north, south, east, and west intersected, kind of like a cross. And so it was a hotspot for commerce and for trade. And verse 3 informs us that there was a crowd of people here in Jericho, undoubtedly a mix of those who were following Jesus and those who were awaiting Jesus as he comes into the city. Now, Jesus has spent the last two and a half years publicly ministering, He's been preaching. He's been performing all kinds of draw dropping miracles and healings. He just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus is something of a celebrity in Israel now. He has an entourage accompanying him wherever he goes. All the more right now with Passover coming up and all the Jews heading toward Jerusalem, their annual pilgrimage. And then you've got all these people in Jericho who hear that Jesus is coming and they all go out to see him. So he comes into the city. It's almost like this huge parade is coming through town. And with that picture in mind, we come to our next element of the story: the sinner. The sinner, in the midst of this massive crowd of probably thousands of people present, one man is singled out. Verse two. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Here we're introduced to a key character in our narrative today, a wealthy tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, a man whose name ironically means pure one, clean, innocent, but who was living a life that was quite far from that, wasn't he? Now tax collectors, uh, sometimes referred to in the Bible as publicans, these were Jewish men who had bought tax franchises from Rome this would give them the right to collect collect taxes for the Roman Empire. And Rome required them to collect a certain amount of taxes, but anything more than that that they acquired, they could keep. So in essence, they had a free pass to overcharge and extort their fellow countrymen to get whatever they could from them. This was truly the first century version of a get-rich-quick scheme. And this is why when tax collectors came to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 and they asked what they should do to get right with God, he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Now, how do you think the people of Israel felt about tax collectors? Uh, You can be sure they absolutely detested them. They viewed them as the most worthless and repugnant and deplorable and sinful of men for working for the enemy right, they're traitors, and for getting rich at the expense of their own people. They were so hated that they were barred from the synagogues, and they couldn't even serve as witnesses in court because it was believed they could not be trusted. The Jewish mindset toward them was, you are not one of us anymore, and there is no reconciling with us ever. And now with Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector in the city or in the region. So he even had tax collectors under him, working for him. He was the boss, and he got a cut of all their profits too. So he was both doubly rich and doubly hated. In fact, he was so despised that in verse 7, we see that the people refer to him simply as a man who is a sinner. How would you like that to be the way the people in your town know you and refer to you? In their minds, if there was anyone in all of Jericho who had absolutely no possible hope of heaven, who was the shoe-in for God's judgment and hell, it was this man, Zacchaeus. In essence, this man was basically Ebenezer Scrooge in the flesh, a lover of money filled with insatiable greed willing to sell his soul, willing to abandon his relationship with his fellow man, and even worse, with God himself, in order to grow a massive fortune. And yet, as we come to verse 3, we see Zacchaeus doing something pretty bizarre and quite out of character for him. Verse 3 says he sought to see who Jesus was. Now, like most of the people in his town, we might think, what is this godless man doing trying to see Jesus? We could picture him sitting at the table in his customs house, collecting and counting up all his money and just mocking Jesus. Yet, oddly enough, he seems to care that Jesus is coming. In fact, we see that he really genuinely wants to see him. Why? Luke doesn't tell us, so we're left to speculate. At the very least, Zacchaeus is curious to see this popular miracle worker that he's been hearing about. But what I think that Luke is telling us here without actually telling us is that God has already set his sights upon Zacchaeus, that the Holy Spirit has already been at work in this man, stirring in him a yearning for Jesus and for that which Jesus alone has to offer. We know that no one seeks the true God independently and of their own accord. Paul makes that very clear in the book of Romans chapter three, which I believe you've been studying just recently. But here it seems that God has already been seeking him and the power of God is already moving in him, convicting him and drawing him to Jesus. Maybe Zacchaeus has finally become sick of his life of lying and stealing and cheating. Maybe he's finally become fed up with hanging up with just the dregs and criminals of society as his friends. Maybe he's tired of being rejected and left out by his fellow Jews. Maybe the guilt of his sin before a holy God has finally become too much for him. Maybe he's seen the joy that those who know Jesus have. He realizes he doesn't have that. Maybe he's realizing that all of his wealth is not fulfilling him the way he expected it to, but actually leaving him feeling more empty. Maybe he desires a new life and a new start, and he's heard that that's possible in Jesus Christ. And maybe you can relate with this today. Maybe you too have been living a life of rejecting God and immersing yourself in sin and making a God out of money or something else, maybe your job or a person, a relationship, power, prestige, pleasure, possessions, whatever it might be, and maybe you're fed up with the life you've been living, and you're full of regret over the choices that you've made. Maybe you're realizing that the promises of this world don't satisfy, but actually leave you feeling more empty. Maybe you're tired of the weight of your sin pressing down upon you and crushing you or the fear of death looming over your head knowing one day you will stand before God Almighty. Know this, as long as your heart is still beating and you're still breathing, it's not too late for you. Jesus can still give you a new start and a new life. Live for him and for his glory. The fact that you're here at church today or listening to this sermon could be evidence that God is already at work in you, drawing you, stirring you, calling you. And like Zacchaeus, I would implore you to seek Jesus. The word of God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And Jesus himself cries out to you saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Zacchaeus here goes out to see who Jesus is as he's coming by. Now, remember, there was no TV in these days, no smartphones, no social media. He probably doesn't even know what Jesus looked like. But as we continue into verse 3, Luke tells us that he could not see Jesus because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. You know, for some reason, I always felt like I could relate to this man, Zacchaeus, Just wasn't sure what it was. Uh, Thankfully, I've never had someone write a song about me calling me a wee little man. I mean, can you imagine? I, I just picture Zacchaeus in heaven, like talking to an angel. Like, can we just get that line changed? I mean, the song doesn't even say anything about me being rich and wealthy. Can we put that in the song? Unlike Pastor Daniel, I know what it's like to have trouble seeing over a crowd. And I'm sure some of you here can relate as well. But you know, I have something in common with Zacchaeus that goes a lot further than being vertically challenged and that's being spiritually challenged. And in fact, I think we all can relate with Zacchaeus in that way, can we not? Like him, we are all sinners in need of a savior and so we should all see ourselves in this story here today. Zacchaeus can't see over the crowd, but he's determined. So he gets resourceful. We read in verse four, so he ran ahead, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. All right, picture this sight here. Here you've got this grown man, this rich man, this man known as a despicable sinner, and he's climbing up a tree to see Jesus. Climbing a tree was an undignified thing for a grown man to do. It was something that the boys would do. And maybe already a couple of boys had climbed up this tree. Maybe it gave him the idea, seeing them sitting there, but Zacchaeus doesn't care about the social norms. He doesn't care about the opinions of the crowd. He only cares about seeing Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are you desperate to see Jesus? Is seeking Jesus a priority of your life? How far will you be willing to go to see more of him? Would you be willing to do something that might make you look foolish or undignified to the watching world? Would you be willing to inconvenience yourself or to make big sacrifices? Would you do whatever it takes, even if it costs you greatly? We must not stop seeking Jesus once we become Christians. In fact, a life of seeking Jesus actually begins once we've become Christians. It is my great and ongoing need to seek Jesus and to see more of him fully. But I don't have to climb a tree to do so. I must seek him in his word. And I must seek him in prayer. I must seek him in worship. I must seek him by having regular fellowship with the people of God. I must seek him in obedience to what he commands of me. By walking by faith in what he calls of me, by serving him, by serving others. As I walk by faith, he reveals more of himself to me. And so the question before us today, is pursuing Jesus the great passion of your life? We've got the setting, we've got the sinner, and now we come to the Savior. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Wow. Can you imagine what a moment this must have been like for Zacchaeus? I don't think we could even comprehend. You know, uh, back in December of 2019, my wife and I attended a conference in New York City, a Bible conference, and my favorite Bible preacher was there man by the name of Paul Washer. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, we walk into this church building, and I see him there talking to a group of men, right? And, and for a second, I was almost like starstruck, you know, like, whoa. Um, and and on two, uh, during one of the break times, I got to talk to him two different moments. And uh, probably he did more of the talking, and I stood there with my jaw hanging open and just blank thoughts in my head trying to think of what to say. But now can you imagine this? Imagine if I walked into the church that day and before I went up to him or before I said anything, he came up to me and he said, Angelo, get your stuff. We're going to your house. I got to come over. I'm staying over. We have to talk. I would have been like, what? This is insane, right? And, and here, I'm a Christian. I know this is another redeemed sinner, right? And yet it would have been mind-blowing. But here's Zacchaeus now, still living the lifestyle he was living. And here's Jesus, the holy son of God, right? God incarnate in the flesh, calling him by name, saying, we need to meet. I'm coming over. Wow. What a moment. This is astounding. And what do we see here in this verse? We see that while Zacchaeus thought that he was seeking Jesus all along, Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. Of all the thousands of people in the crowd, no less, you know, obviously with many God-fearing, law-abiding Jewish people in this crowd, yet who does Jesus come for? This man, this wicked, greedy, lying, stealing, cheating sinner. Let me ask you this morning, do you think you have sinned too greatly that God could never love you, that God could never forgive you, that God could never save you. You're just the kind of person God loves to save. Our loving Savior pursues the least likely. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come for people who think themselves righteous, who think themselves good by their own goodness and by their own works and by their own performance. He came for sinners and he loves to save those who know they are sinners in need of a savior. 1 Timothy 1.15, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. No matter what you have done, no matter how vile a life you may have lived, you may have murdered people. You may have been a Satanist. You may have persecuted Christians like the Apostle Paul. You might have even spoken curses or blasphemies against Jesus. And yet, God's grace is still infinitely greater than your sin. The beauty of the gospel is that you cannot outsin God's grace. I love how Pastor John MacArthur worded it. He said, the worse the sinner, the more marvelously his grace and glory are revealed through that sinner's redemption. And to quote the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, quote, I tell you, there is not a reprobate walking the streets and defiling the air with his blasphemies. There is not a creature abandoned so as to be well nigh as bad as Satan himself if he is a child of life who is not within the reach of mercy. Praise the Lord for that. Jesus calls the least likely to himself. As my pastor often says, he came for the least, the last, and the lost. Now, let's just take a moment to look at the way Jesus calls Zacchaeus, because I find this to be mind-blowing here. It's so beautiful, and there's so many parallels here with the way that the good shepherd calls each of his sheep. The way he called you, maybe the way he's calling some of you even here today. First, we see he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. You know, you might think at times there's billions of people in the world, I feel invisible, like I'm a nobody. Does God even see me? Does God even know? Does he even care? Yes, brother, yes, sister, he cares. He knows you by name. He knows everything about you. And yes, he knows all of your darkest, deepest sins. And yet he still loves you. Yet he still desires a relationship with you. And he calls you individually, personally, specifically by your name. Secondly, he calls him with sovereign authority. Make haste and come down. Notice this wasn't a question. This wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't optional for him. He gave him a command and orders him to come down. Tells him he must stay at his house. He's got a divine appointment with this man that's been scheduled from before the foundation of the world by the Father himself, and they must meet. It is a divine mandate and so, we, so with us, when Jesus calls us to Himself, He commands us with sovereign authority to come. Third, He calls Him with urgency: make haste. Other translations say hurry, and He says they must meet today. When Jesus calls out to you, it is an urgent command that calls for decisive action. Today is the day of salvation. Following Jesus is not something to put off until you're older tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us. You must come to him while you still have the opportunity to do so and before it is too late. The fourth thing we see is he calls us to humility, right? He says to Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus already had to put aside pride to climb up onto a tree. Now to really see Jesus, he would have to come down. And if we're going to really see Jesus, we need to walk in humility. We need to posture ourselves below the Lord, below his word, not above it. We need to come down from our pride. Number five, his call is intimate, invasive, even intrusive. I must stay at your house. Jesus could have spoken with him right there on the street, couldn't he? Couldn't he just share the gospel with him right then and there? But instead, he insists that they go to his house, like likely a very dark place with a very dark history for Zacchaeus. And yet Jesus steps into it, and not just for a quick conversation, but to stay the night and to have a meal with him, right? To have meaningful fellowship with this man, Zacchaeus. Listen, if we're gonna come to Jesus for salvation, we cannot keep him at arm's length. We must let him into our very homes, And I'm not talking about our physical houses, right? I'm talking about our hearts and our lives. We must receive him. He intends to come in and to dine with us and to abide with us. He wants to give us his full attention and to have loving fellowship with us. He doesn't come just to step in for a few moments and then leave. He comes to stay, to dwell in us by his very spirit, And he does not intend to remain a guest or a visitor. He expects us to hand him the keys and the deed and the title to the house and to acknowledge him as the new and rightful master of the house. Oh, how beautiful and how loving is our Lord when he calls out to a lost sinner to save them. And perhaps he's calling some of you here today. He's calling you by name. And he's seeking to come into your house today. Will you receive him? Will you welcome him in? And will you recognize him as Lord and Savior? As we come now to verse six, we see Zacchaeus' response. And once again, he probably does something here that that surprises even himself. Verse six. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully, gladly. Zacchaeus obeys, gladly, gladly. He receives Jesus into his house. Again, the Spirit of God has been preparing Zacchaeus for this very moment and is powerfully moving in his heart, opening his eyes to see his need for Christ and to behold the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ, drawing him to Jesus by his irresistible grace. So you've got the setting, you've got the sinner, we've got the Savior, and now we've got the self-righteous in verse seven. Verse seven, but when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Isn't this incredible? Here you've got this crowd who's been watching this whole thing unfold, and instead of them praising God and saying, wow, Jesus came for a lost sinner like Zacchaeus, and he loves wicked people like us, no. All they could think is to scoff and grumble and complain, they're shocked, they're appalled, thinking, "How can this holy man enter into the den of a thief?" And they look down on him. They think he's now defiled himself. And they're acting just like the Pharisees, aren't they? How often they indicted him and accused him and condescendingly labeled him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But in actuality, that's what he was. That's what he is. And praise God for that. Jesus loves sinners. That's good news because that's all of us. Jesus loves sinners. And he's able to associate with sinners without at all condoning their sin, without at all minimizing the heinousness of their sin, without at all being influenced by and drawn into their sin. Instead, he frees sinners from their sin. He breaks their chains He saves them from sin's penalty and its power in their lives. Yes, Jesus loves the sinner just the way they are, but he also loves them too much to let them stay the way they are. But these self righteous people, they had no love for sinners, no compassion, no heart, no care for outcasts and sinners like Zacchaeus. And even worse, they could not see their own sinfulness. They didn't realize that they too were sinners needing a savior. They thought they were good. And in their blind pride and religiosity, they kept themselves cut off from God's saving grace. Let me ask you this morning, are we more like the self-righteous or are we more like the savior? When we as Christians see people who are living lives immersed in sin, when we see people rejecting God, do we just scoff at them? Do we just reject them? Do we just look down on them, turn a blind eye to them, want nothing to do with them? Are there people you know who are such wicked and flagrant sinners that you don't even bother trying to share Jesus with them? You don't even bother trying to get to know them? You're like, it's not even worth it, it's just a lost cause? On the flip side, do you only tend to surround yourself with other Christians? Do you only spend time with other people who are like you? Do you only seem to care about people who live moral lives and who seem to have their lives all together? Then in our own self-righteousness, we are missing the very heart and mission of Christ. I know I'm often guilty of this myself. We must ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes give us hearts that are burdened for the lost because we ourselves were lost before Christ came for us. And having been rescued from the burning inferno, we're not to now go off on an island somewhere and live peaceful, relaxing, comfortable lives, indulging ourselves. No, we are now called to run back into the blaze to help others get rescued who are still stuck inside. God's been really convicting me on this topic lately because I'm very inclined to start up gospel conversations with people who seem approachable, with people who seem friendly, with people who seem like they'd be easy to talk to, with people I can easily relate to that probably won't put me in any danger in any way. God's been putting it on my heart that I need to expand my horizons when it comes to evangelism. There's a man at work, I work at a public school and, there's this man who's a custodian there, and he's got a very, very tough exterior, very hard, very rough, right? And, and every day he just seems miserable. Do you know people like that, just miserable, just hates his job, just hates life. Everything is negative. He hardly wants to talk, right? He's not very approachable. And God has put him on my heart. This man needs Jesus. So I've been praying for him. I've been trying to create small talk with him, trying to look for ways to talk to him and point him to Jesus where I can. Trying to find ways to bring our conversation to the gospel and share Christ. I believe God wants to save him. I believe he's the kind of person God loves to save. He's not the kind of person I love to go after. But I need to put myself aside. I need to let Jesus live his love for this man through me. God has me there. If I don't talk to him, if I say, forget it, this guy's just not a religious kind of guy. You know, church is just not his thing. The Bible's not his thing. Then I'm missing and dismissing the very heart of Christ. And I'm failing to let Jesus live through me. Are there people in your lives? Are there people you're going to pass by this very week and they look just too far gone, right? They'll never get saved. Are there people you know who maybe used to call themselves Christians? They've walked away, and you're like, oh, forget it. They're never coming back. God has you in their life to bring them the good news and to be praying for them. God has given us a ministry to set captives free. We think it's impossible, but what does Jesus tell us? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Who would have thought Zacchaeus would ever get saved? Nobody. If there's still air in their lungs, God can still do a miracle. God can have a Zacchaeus moment with them even today. Do we believe that? As a church of God, we need to stop living in fear and cowardice and we need to stop writing people off. How easy it would have been to do that with this man here today in Zacchaeus. But we need to move toward people in love, boldness and truth get ourselves out of the way, let Christ live his missional life through us, amen? With that, we come to the next element of our story, and now we come to the salvation, the salvation. After verse 7, Luke fast-forwards to Jesus and Zacchaeus in conversation in Zacchaeus' house. Perhaps they've been having a meal together. We don't know exactly what they've been talking about but we can assume Jesus is either talking with him about his sin or about the gospel, and maybe Zacchaeus has been asking him all kinds of spiritual questions. However the conversation went, we see that Jesus has revealed himself to this man, Zacchaeus, just like he did to the woman at the well. And now in verse eight, we see, then Zacchaeus stood. Other translations, he stopped. And he said to the Lord, look, Lord. Notice he now refers to Jesus as Lord. Lord. Look, Lord, I give half of my goods, half of my money to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation or by defrauding them in any way, I restore fourfold. I give them back four times as much. Can you imagine? How about this? Any onlookers surely must be thinking, I can't believe what I'm hearing right now. I mean, how can this be? How can this Scrooge actually care about helping Tiny Tim? This just doesn't happen in real life. What has happened? How does a conversation over a meal bring this kind of a change about? Well, it's because of the one with whom he had the meal. A true encounter with Jesus Christ changes a person forever. Here we see that a miracle of God has happened once again in Jericho. Walls have once again fallen in Jericho, but this time it's the walls of this sinner's heart that have been built up against God for so many years. And those walls have come tumbling down by the power of Almighty God in a miracle that I believe is even more incredible and impressive than that first miracle back in Joshua's day. Now, of course, the world will look at Zacchaeus here. And the world would say, what are you doing, Zacchaeus? You're not going to be rich if you give all your money away. You're going to be poor. And Zacchaeus would answer now, with all my wealth, I have been the poorest soul on the planet. And now, for the very first time, I am rich. In fact, I'm the richest man in the world, richer than I could have ever imagined, because now I have true treasure. I have Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, money, which had been such a big thing to him, that had been such an idol, such a God to this man, now it was such a small thing to him. Now he rightly saw money as a tool that he could use to serve and bless others with. Now he could say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This man is new, and he has a new relationship with God, in turn a new relationship with sin and with righteousness and with the world and with other people a saving relationship with Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, I saw it on the sign coming in this morning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and behold, new things have come. For the first time, Zacchaeus can actually relate with the meaning of his name, pure, innocent, clean, because of his union with Jesus Christ brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He came to make lost people found. And when we truly encounter Jesus, we are never the same again. Verse 9, Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Now, is Jesus saying here that Zacchaeus is saved because he's going to be generous and he's going to give money away to the poor because he's going to make restitution for all of his theft? No. We could do nothing to earn salvation. It's a gift of grace that we receive solely by faith. But he's saying that Zacchaeus here is giving evidence of salvation. He's bearing the fruit of genuine repentance and faith. If a person has truly been saved, it will be evidenced by a changed life. Real faith and real repentance produce joyful, eager obedience to God and selfless, sacrificial love for God and for others. Just think about this. When when a person becomes a Christian, God, who did not live in them previously, now comes and lives in them by his Holy Spirit. How could there not be a massive change? You've probably heard this illustration before, something like it. But imagine I came here this morning. I said, you know, on my way here, I had to pull over on Route 9. I got out of my car, and as I did, I got hit by a Mack truck. And you'd stare at me like, what are you talking about? like, you must be lying because you don't look any different. If you got hit with a Mack truck, you would look different. And, of course, the question to us is, well, what's bigger, a truck or God? How can a person have an encounter with the living God and not be changed? And so anyone who says they're a Christian, but their life looks no different at all, that's a cause for some weariness, isn't it? Verse 9, Jesus refers to Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. Now, we'd say, well, hasn't he always been a son of Abraham? right? In one sense, yes, he's always been an ethnic descendant of Abraham. He's always been ethnically Jewish. But all along, he was never a true son of Abraham. He was never a true Jew in the full spiritual sense. The apostle Paul labors to make this point in the book of Galatians. He says in chapter three, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the book of Romans chapter 4, he says that Abraham is the father of all those who believe. A true Jew is one, not one who is simply Jewish outwardly by ethnic descent or by physical circumcision. A true Jew is one inwardly who's been circumcised of the heart. A true son of Abraham is a person who, like Abraham, has faith in the living God. And now Zacchaeus, having come to faith in Jesus, has actually become a true child of Abraham, a true child of God's family. How about you? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter what kind of home you grew up in. It doesn't matter if you're born into a Jewish home, a Catholic home, a Muslim home, a Buddhist home, an atheist home, a Mormon home, even a Protestant Christian home even a good Reformed Baptist home. doesn't matter. You need to become a child of God. You need to become a child of Abraham by having personal faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering your life to him and his lordship. That's what Zacchaeus did that day, and it changed his life forever. In fact, according to tradition, Zacchaeus was later appointed by Peter to be the first bishop of Caesarea. Whether that's true or not, we can imagine he went on to have a lot of influence in the early church. All right, so we've had the setting, we've had the sinner, we've had the Savior, we've had the self-righteous, we've had the salvation, and now finally we come to the summary in verse 10, the summary. Here we have Jesus' mission statement in verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Right in that verse, we have the greatest news in the whole world. Right in this verse, we have the greatest summary of the Bible and of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ came on a search and rescue mission for lost sinners. That is good news for us because we are all lost sinners apart from Jesus Christ. John 3, as I prayed before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is why we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. The angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's the God who saves. And if you've never come to him for salvation, I implore you, come to him today. Cry out to him to save you. Come to him in repentance and in faith. And not only will he come into your house, but he will receive you into his father's house for all eternity. And if you want to talk with someone about this, you want to receive prayer about your relationship with Jesus, by all means, see me before you leave today. Talk with one of the members of this church here before you leave here today. For all of us who have been saved For all of us who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, the Bible says we are in Christ, that we are one with Jesus, that he now lives in us and he lives his life through us. That means we are to share with him in this mission. Have you joined him in his work of seeking and saving the lost? two points as we bring this to a close today. First thing, verse 10 must be the mission statement of our lives. Our lives. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's been well said, if you ain't fishing, then you ain't following. If we're living for our own comforts, pleasures, and desires, if we're looking to just fill our wallets and just have lots of fun in this life and we're focused all on ourselves, and we've missed it entirely. I mean, how could I say that I've been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me? How could that be true, and yet I'd be living my life not on mission to seek and save people who are lost? There's such a great quote here that Pastor Daniel put in the bulletin. I don't know if you all saw it by Richard Baxter here on the the front page of the the bulletin or on this, this page here. And Richard Baxter said, oh, then let us hear these arguments of Christ. Whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless, did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which was lost? And will you not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? Very convicting, but should also remind us of what we've been saved for. And second thing, verse 10 must always be the mission statement of our churches. If our churches become all about just putting on really good Sunday morning services for Christians, then close the doors if we just become all about being a really nice Christianized social club and we get together and discuss how good we know theology and what new good Christian books we've read and on and on, but we're not outreaching the lost, shut it, shut it down. It doesn't honor God. We're not living out the mission we've been called to. He didn't save us so we would have our own little social clubs. He saved us to now be part of his mission of saving others. Charles Spurgeon said it well when he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You know, just days after meeting with Zacchaeus, Jesus went to the cross. He would suffer that excruciating death, most horrible death anyone's ever suffered and died. Why? Why did he do it? Because he loves us. Because he came to seek and to save the lost and ultimately did that by taking our sin upon his innocent shoulders, dying our death in our place so that we could have life. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the greatest price. He suffered the highest cost. And because of that, salvation is ours freely. But let me ask you now this morning, what sacrifices are you willing to make? What costs are we willing to endure? What price are we willing to pay to see his mission accomplished in our day through us? In 2022, will we sit back and watch from the bleachers as mere spectators? Or will we join our Lord and see him do miracles even greater than Jericho through us? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We confess to you. We confess that we so often live our lives focused on ourselves. We get so caught up in the day-to-day details and to-do lists of our own lives. And we so often are cold and hardened, calloused toward the lost. We rejoice in our own salvation, but we care little of so many who are on a path to hell. But Jesus, you came to seek and save the lost. And that's our mission now. So God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our self-focusedness and give us a burden for lost people and give us such great joy in you and in the gospel that it just overflows out of us, that we cannot stay silent, that we must tell people of the great God we've come to know and of the great salvation we've come to experience and the freedom of sin that you have brought about in our lives. You have raised us from death to life and we get to help others experience that miracle. Praise the Lord, God, what you've done for us is too great for words. Oh, Lord, do a work in us, change us, renew in us, Lord, a commitment to live our lives for others, a commitment to be focused, to be alert, to have our eyes open to people around us every day and where we might get to show them the love of Christ or speak to them the love of Christ that they too may come to be found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.